0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Thank you to those of you who filled in for me on various duties. Been out of town. Uh, Debbie and I, at least, I know, I, I think, this summer's been the busiest summer of my life with family things and ministry things. It's been unbelievable. God was good. He got us through it all. When I looked at the summer schedule, I thought, man, I don't I don't know how we're going to do it, um, but we thank him. Last week I was gone, so thanks to Sam for filling in Sunday school and for Scott for preaching for me, uh, among other things. And uh, just so you know, several of you were, knew where I was going and were praying for me. Thank you, God, answered your prayer. You're praying for safety for me and for our kids. Uh, one of the things that I had to do was drive one of my daughters to Baylor University and I drove, Grandpa gave her a gift of a car, and so we drove her her car out to Texas, just the two of us, me and Krissa, and it was 1,700 miles, and we did it in two days. One day we put in 1,100 miles. Actually, one day Dad put in 1,100 miles (laughs) while she listened to her iPod or whatever, (laughs) which is fine because I I wanted to drive, because if I'm not driving, I'm either going to fall asleep or get sick, so... Uh, but she offered to drive a couple times. I said, no, that's okay. But we, we had a lot of time to chat and talk. It was great. So it was very good personal time for the two of us. So God got us there, 1,700 miles uh, total later in two days. And then I helped her set up her apartment there right next to the campus. And so we just had a good time together. Prayed, read the Word, had fun. Went to Dairy Queen more times than we are allowed to by Mom. So that was really cool. Um, <laughs> then flew back and got home at Friday at like 11 p.m. and had to finish packing because I had to get up at 4 a.m. to drive another daughter to college down in Southern California. So that's what we did last Saturday. So it was like 2,400 miles of driving in that short period of time. and was exhausted, but God was good. And so we drove Brianna down to Southern California Master's College. And there were actually uh, about 20 GBF folks who... Ended up going down to Master's College from uh, me and Bob Douglas and Tim Wong. All We were dropping off kids there at the Master's College. And then Nathan and, uh, I mean, uh, Robert and Misty Anderson took Nathan down there. So last Sunday, we were in front row listening to Johnny Mac preach spinning range. And I, I think I counted like 20 GBFers at Grace Church. So I knew the attendance would have been down here. But that's where we were. And there were other people out of pocket as well. But I just want to thank you for... Uh, your prayers and god 's goodness in protecting us, um, so we got to drop off two of our four kids, going down to the master 's college was exciting because that 's where I graduated in one thousand nine hundred and eighty nine It was good to be in the old stomping ground and then on Saturday, uh, they had a picnic for all the new students, incoming students, mostly freshmen, and their parents on the grass and orientation and then John MacArthur came because he 's the president of the college, and he addressed the parents. And the kids and welcomed them all it was great. Um, and then later that day, they had a formal welcoming from John MacArthur as the president for the parents alone. And so during that time, uh, John just again welcomed the parents, gave some great exhortations from Scripture, very encouraging words. Uh, reminded us that he's been the president of the college, uh, which has about a thousand people for 25 years, and he takes that seriously, and that he is he is ultimately responsible for the care of the students that we entrust to the college. And he, he counts out a great privilege, but he said it's a scary thing to be accountable for your children while they're here, spiritually, physically, emotionally, academically. Uh, but it was good to hear. Uh, that statement stuck, stood out in my mind when he said that I am ultimately accountable. And then he said you're... Children are going, your freshmen are dropping off. Now they're just going to have a week of fun before school starts in another week, and we call it Wow Week, Week of Welcome. Each day they're going to have different activities to do, get to know people. They're going to meet uh, people that are going to be the friends the rest of their life, and they're going to do fun activities and structured activities to orient them to the master's college. So that's what's going to take place this week called Wow Week, and it is a time of fun memorable experiences but then they had something that happened which was a tragedy actually during Wow Week on Wednesday it was Beach Day and so the entire incoming class of I don't know 300 plus students and all the staff that worked with them went to the Oxnard Beach and they were there all day and then later in the day a group of college boys and small group of boys were just doing what boys do, and that's digging in the beach in the sand. And they dug a pit about six to eight feet deep. And one of the incoming freshmen jumped in it and laid down to take a picture, and it collapsed on him, and he died instantly. Um, They didn't know that he had died right away, and they feverishly tried to dig him out for 15 minutes. They called the fire department. And the firemen came in with their tools. It took the firemen with tools 15 minutes just to get his body. And uh, that put a damper on Wow Week. It actually devastated the student body and the campus. Uh, As the boys were trying to dig out their friend who was uh, a freshman student from South Korea originally. Um, So it was very sad. And so I've been thinking about that since Wednesday. And one of our own, uh, Nathan Anderson, was there. He wasn't a part of digging the pit, but he saw the stir, the panic, and went over, realized what they were doing, and Nathan began to dig uh, for the boy. And then the fire department pushed them aside and finally pulled out his lifeless body. So Nathan saw the whole thing. And then our very own Paige Douglas was also there and witnessed this. So it's a traumatic event. I bring this up because I want you to be in prayer for them, the whole campus. This affects us directly. Uh, I was interacting with the Andersons, uh, especially their parents during this. Providentially, they are they had planned to go down this week on Friday to see Nathan for ROTC, so they're there with Nathan, which is the grace of God. that was Wednesday they didn't find out he was uh, the boy was announced pronounced dead till Wednesday evening I don't know eight thirty and then they had a, a special emergency meeting with the entire church campus and John MacArthur and the staff in the gymnasium that night I don't know what time it was nine thirty or ten and So, Pastor John, President John, addressed the entire student body with the truth of Scripture, trying to provide comfort, uh, praying for them, and giving them a biblical frame of mind by which to interpret and, and deal with this tragedy. Well, before Pastor John addressed them, Nathan was devastated. But he was comforted after John spoke. And the next day, uh, Nathan sent this. So he had 24 hours to think. He said, I, I just read the news article. On the LA Times about the incident at the beach. A, there are a few NBC vans around on the campus, but they're being very respectful to the students. We do have security around so that none of them really bother us. The Masters Cup sports event was canceled tonight during WoW Week to make the media not so confused. I talked to Shelly, Bree, page they all asked how I was doing after being directly involved with the whole thing I just shared with them that it has truly opened my eyes to how short life can be also that it opened my eyes to the big question what do you spend most of this life doing is it for my own pleasure or is it for the Lord God has definitely used this to speak to my heart personally. I had realized that I had spent too much of my time in media and not enough worshiping and bringing glory to God. But I want to encourage you guys and GBF. That's why I'm reading this. To pray for the other students that are still taking this very hard and for those who knew him personally, family and friends. I found out last night in this chapel session with Pastor John MacArthur. I found out last night that God is the only comfort that can truly bring healing to your heart after seeing such a dramatic event such as this unfold. God is the only comfort. I had probably cried and prayed more that day than any other day in my life. Though this is tragic, Praise the Lord and rejoice that this boy is with God walking on the streets of gold. Uh, Nathan Anderson. So I I definitely wanted to share that with our church family and be in prayer for Nathan, that whole community. And, And I thought this was a very appropriate introduction to the topic today, and that is what the Bible says about atheism. In light of Nathan's statement there, what I learned or was reminded of is There's only one way to survive and be comforted and deal with a tragedy like this, and that's your relationship with God. If you're rock solid with the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of a personal relationship with Him. Because these are the kind of things that shake you to your foundation and to your core. And you're either standing on the solid rock of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ or you're standing on sand because you have nothing. And Nathan is right. That's what Jesus said. That's what the Bible says. So we're going to go ahead and look and do just a quick survey on what the Bible has to say about atheism. And so let's go ahead and do that. If you need a Bible, raise your hand and uh, we'll pass those out. If you want to follow along on the Bible, just keep your hand up. You can borrow one of those. Just a great truth to be reminded of. I think uh, looking at this from a biblical point of view, what the Bible says about atheists can help us practically in a lot of ways. Maybe you have a neighbor or friend who proclaims to be an atheist. Maybe you have... a uh, I think it'll help you in your evangelism. It'll help you in your strategy of how to share the gospel with an atheist. Because many times we're told, well, when you're sharing the gospel, you know, it depends on where the unbeliever's is coming from. If they're a Muslim or an, a Mormon, you've got to do it one way. If they're an agnostic, you've got to approach it a different way. And if they're an atheist, you've got to approach it a different way. And I'd say, well, not really. That would be what I would say. and that, I think that's based on the Bible and Jesus' approach and the apostles' approach to evangelism and how people get saved in presenting the gospel. So that's why I wanted to deal with this all-important topic. So let's go ahead and look at it and key truths and key verses that go along with it. I know some atheists. um, Actually, very aggressive intellectual atheism is taking our world and country by storm. I don't know if you've even noticed, but in the last 10 to 15 years, some of the number one best New York Times bestsellers have been written by atheists. Outright, and they're writing on the topic of atheism. And they're not being neutral about it. They're being dogmatic about it. And, uh, for example, The God Delusion is the title of one of the books. It's still a bestseller here in America. It has been for five years. Uh, another one, God is not great. They put God's name in very small letters. God is not great. I think it was by Christopher Hitchens, and uh, that's still a bestseller. So they just keep pumping them out, and you can find them in all the bookstores and uh, they're getting airtime, and the media are fascinated by them, and uh, they are aggressive. So atheism is all around us. So another place atheism is all around us is when we did GBF basketball camp in early July, and I had the 6th and 7th grade boys in my small group each day, and I told you that the first day on Monday I went around and said, do you believe in God, do you believe in God? And this is the 6th and 7th grade, six and seven year old boys, kindergarten, first grade, five of them. The first four I asked, do you believe in God? And they all said, yes. I got to the last one, seven years old. Do you believe in God? He said, no. And then that's when the other four boys went, panic. And uh, so I had a seven-year-old atheist I had to contend with all week long. And by the grace of God, I think we did. And this was my thinking as I interacted with that little boy all week. Who at the end of the week gave me a big hug and said, I just want you to know, I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. And I believe I'm going to heaven. It's like, wow. It had nothing to do with me. It had all to do with the power of God, His gospel, and His grace. So let's go on to point number one. Well, What is the truth about atheism? Well, the atheist is a rebel. I'm not trying to stir up the pot here. I'm just using scriptural terminology. Actually, I originally had the atheist is a fool because that's what the Bible says. But in going from Hebrew, where that's taken from in Psalm 14, and also in Romans 1, which is in Greek, going to the English language from Hebrew and Greek, the word fool is not the best interpretation because of the nuances for the word fool in English aren't specific enough for what the Hebrew and the Greek are saying. And literally what the Hebrew is saying there is that the atheist is a rebel. There are moral implications here. Uh, The the atheist is a willful, deliberate God-hater who loves his sin and is a rebel and proud of it. And that is the way the word fool is used dozens of times in the book of Proverbs in the Hebrew. And there are actually many synonyms for the word fool in Proverbs that are used. Most of those have this moral and spiritual connotation to it. So, stupid or a fool doesn't cut it. It's, it's rebel because that's really what it's talking about. But with that background, I did, I want to go back to Psalm 14 just to read that verse again uh, where this is God's diagnosis. That the, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The atheist has said in his heart, there is no God. The atheist has said within himself, there is no God. And he's a rebel when he does that. He is a fool. He's a rebel. He's a blasphemer. He is guilty. He is culpable. That's what that means. A lot of times we think, well, the fool said in his heart there's no God. And a lot of times the way we diagnose atheists is, well, they don't know any better, or they don't have enough information, or they're neutral. Or that's a fair thing to say. And God said no. Anybody that says he's an atheist and there is no God is a fool and a rebel at heart. That's God's diagnosis. Now, I think that's important for believers to know that. You have that assessment and diagnosis. So if I'm interacting with an unbeliever on the street or on the bus or in my basketball small group, I know when that little seven-year-old boy said he's a, an atheist, I don't believe in God. Immediately I thought, man, this, this boy is a rebel. I didn't say that, though. I didn't say, you fool. Then he probably would have left the basketball camp. That would have been not good. But I thought it to myself. Oh, okay, this is going to help me in how I'm going to deal with this little boy for the next five days. He is a rebel at heart, probably because he's seven. He probably get, he's probably speaking what his parents believe. So i got to cut him some slack here. Although he was a pretty well-versed, educated atheist, because he backed it up with some pretty impressive, consistent logic about why he was an atheist at age seven. But God making the statement is more, I think, helpful for us in how we understand, treat, and proceed with atheists. Because a lot of times they use the atheist card as kind of as a trump card and that, to, to put the brakes on and to make us back off and panic and stop and say, oh, oh okay, he's an atheist. Okay, I can't give him the gospel because he's an atheist. So i got to do something else and speak to him on his terms and talk about other stuff and not talk about Jesus. I mean, he's not going to believe in Jesus. He's an atheist, so I'm not going to talk about Jesus. That's too offensive. So we'll talk about other stuff. And usually it happens to be stuff they're comfortable with. But God's diagnosis clearly is that the atheist is a fool. The atheist is a rebel in the heart, spiritually speaking. It doesn't mean that the atheist is as bad as he can be in every area of life, outwardly speaking. This is a diagnosis from God of his heart and his spiritual status is what that means. There are atheists out there who can be polite, who can be cordial, who can have manners, and decorum, socially speaking. That is true. That's the outward way that they conduct themselves. But on the heart, and only God knows the heart, this is His supernatural penetrating diagnosis. And He goes on to say that the atheist, not only is he a fool, he is corrupt. Corrupt. Again, a moral declaration is being made. They have committed abominable deeds before God. The Lord God looks down from heaven upon these unbelieving people, to see if there are any who understand and seek after God. And the verdict is, no, they don't. So the atheist is a rebel. Let's go on to point number two. The atheist is not neutral about Jesus. Because a lot of times that's what we're led to believe. Oh, we need to hear Christopher Hitchens and his case and read his book and give it uh, a hearing. We need to stand with Him on neutral ground about the question of God. We all need to be agnostic about God's existence and all start on the same playing field. And we need to hear His case and then we need to present our case. Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins, and the other guy, Stanger is his name. They're considered the, they're these best-selling authors they are atheists and they're considered the unholy trinity that reigns supreme today in America and in the intellectual world. But these guys, they aren't neutral about Jesus. So uh, people that say that, it's just not accurate. They are rebels to the core, at the heart. They are defiant of God because that's what God has said, and he knows the heart. Even Jesus said that. They're not neutral about Jesus either. Matthew 1230, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. See, that—that that is categorical, and there's only two people in the world have said it a zillion times because that's what Scripture says, uh, children of God and children of the devil. And they're at different places on the spectrum, and they act different ways. But that's God's diagnosis. You're either a child of God or a child of Satan. You are either a holy one, a saint, saved by God, or you're unsaved. You're a believer or you're an unbeliever. You see spiritually, you are blinded spiritually. That's it, just two categories. And that's what Jesus meant here. You are either with me or you are against me. There's no neutral ground. There's no middle ground. That's why you always have to bring up the issue of Jesus in a conversation with any unbeliever, regardless if he's an agnostic, an atheist, a Mormon, or whatever, or somebody that just doesn't care. You, you've got to cut to the chase. What do you think about Jesus? And that's Jesus' verdict. He who is not with me is against me. I just want to read a couple of quotes. These are from these best-selling atheist authors, world-renowned. They're all over the place. And they're sarcastic, they're cutting, they're biting, they're insulting, they're condescending, they're mean. They pretty much think Christians are buffoons and idiots and uneducated and unintelligent. Richard Dawkins, I don't know if you ever saw that movie called Expelled with uh, Ben Steiner or whatever his name was. Expelled it was called and it was on intelligent design and uh, why um atheists and agnostics have a prejudice that's illegitimate in the academic world all over the world against people who believe in Christ, God, religion or just theism in general. And they interviewed Richard Dawkins and boy he was he was pretty snotty and proud of it and here's what he said. He, in the interview in the movie of Expelled, he picks up, he goes, may I quote from myself? Because the guy asked him, well, what do you believe? I understand you believe this. And he said, well, may I quote from myself? I say it better than you. And he picked up his best-selling book and he literally read out of it. He said, listen to this. I am attacking God, all gods, anything and everything supernatural, wherever and whenever they have been or will, will be invented. And he goes on to quote what he says the God of the Bible and the God of the Old Testament is. And he le- reads that long quote where he basically calls the God of the Old Testament unloving, hateful, infanticidal, uh, and just hell-bent on being evil and destructive. It is utterly blasphemous, and he is proud of it. He repeats it whenever he can. And they also mock Christians. The other guy, uh, Stanger is his name. Yeah, Victor Stanger. Here's a quote out of his book about how idiotic Christians are for believing in Jesus. He says, quote, We have no evidence for Bigfoot, the abominable snowman, and the Loch Ness Monster, so we do not believe they exist. If we have no evidence or other reasoning for believing in God, then we can pretty be sure that God does not exist. So and basically what he's saying is if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in God, then it's like you believe in Santa Claus and the abominable snowman. You're believing in a fairy tale. So that's just I just wanted you to get a flavor of their approach and they're not sincere they're not nice they are at least they're honest in revealing what's truly in their heart but the point is whoever the atheist is he's not neutral about jesus he has a position it is willful it is deliberate and even if he hasn't voiced it god knows what it is and it's if you're not with christ you are against christ you are his enemy number three So the atheist is a rebel. The atheist is not neutral about Jesus. The atheist, get this. Here's the nasty little secret that people don't want to talk about and sometimes don't ever talk about because actually many people don't believe this. The atheist was born a theist. Imagine that. Now, if you asked Richard Dawkins, he'd probably say, no, I wasn't. I've never believed in God. Christopher Hitchens, world-famous atheist, he'd say, well, I did it when I was a little kid because I was brainwashed by my parents. But I've come to realize truth that there is no God. But the fact of the matter is that the atheist was born a theist. I can say that assuredly and dogmatically so because that's clearly what the Bible teaches. Not only are atheists born theists, every human being is born a theist. It is hard to find a four or five year old atheist. It is hard. Because if you're an atheist, you're a trained atheist. You were trained to think that way. And then as you get older, if you become an atheist, you probably became that way in light of your sin and your Continual rejection of God and of truth. That's the testimony of Scripture. But just some key verses uh, establishing this truth that the atheist was born a theist. He came out of the womb a theist believing in God. I put Ecclesiastes 3.11 there. Written by Solomon about 1000 B.C. Where God declared through the Holy Spirit... That God has put eternity in their hearts. God has put eternity, the reality of eternity, in the heart of every human being. That is the context of Ecclesiastes 3.11. In other words, every person born in this world realizes and knows intuitively, instinctively from the time of birth, there is a Creator, I am accountable to Him, when I die I have to face Him, and that's why I have a fear of death, whether I talk about it or not. And God put that in the heart of every human being from the womb. They can try to squelch that. They can try to suppress that, run from it, hide it, redefine it. It's still there. The truth of eternal realities is in the heart of every human being. They realize there's an eternal destiny that I have by virtue of the fact that I was made by a creator. Uh, Let's go to Romans 1 and look at this very specifically. Romans 1 really is a commentary and further development of the truth of Ecclesiastes 3.11. And Psalm 14, where Paul quotes the psalms so look at romans 1 get your eyeballs and and follow paul's argument look at it see what he's saying it starts in romans chapter 1 verse 18 so really from romans chapter 1 verse 18 and following all the way to chapter 3 paul is making a case about unbelievers he's establishing scripturally a biblical truth about unbelievers uh, the state of their mind uh, their relationship to god and he's making a case as he's moved along by the Holy Spirit of God. So this applies to atheists just as much as any other unbeliever. And he starts at verse 18 and says, For the wrath of God is being revealed, present tense, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Right now, God is pouring out His wrath from heaven supernaturally against anybody that is not a believer. That's what that means. Well, I don't see that happening. Well, it's happening. Because God said so. All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. That's talking about unbelievers. And these unbelievers, at the end of verse uh, 18, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They suppress the truth. See? The atheist, he's a liar. He's suppressing the truth. I don't believe in God. Yeah, you do. You were born believing in God. You're just suppressing it. You're trying to resist what you know is innately, intuitively, inherently true. Verse 19. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. That's key, verse 19. They are suppressing the truth of God, that He exists, that He is their Creator, that He is ultimately their Judge, that Jesus requires an accounting in this life. They don't like it. They love their sin. They're running away from God. They're pushing down, suppressing this truth. Verse 19 says, because that which is known about God... There it is. They know this is true. That which is known about God... Well, how do we know it's true? Because Paul said right here through the Holy Spirit, it is evident within them. There is internal truth mechanism that they were created with. It's called a conscience that every human being has. And also the fact that every human being was made in God's image. Every human being knows that God exists because of those two realities. Every human being made in God's image. Every human being given a conscience by God. They know within themselves that God exists, and they are suppressing this truth because of their love for sin. And it is undeniable. It is clear. There is perspicuity there. In other words, it can be clearly seen, understood, and comprehended. In other words, there are no excuses. The atheist can't say, well, I'm not sure, or it's not clear to me, or it's somewhat, uh, or I'm an agnostic about it. You can't say that, because the end of verse 19 says, for God Made it evident to them. God made it clearly manifest to them. There's no excuse. His divine imprint on the human soul. And that's how they know that God exists. And then Paul furthers his argument for since the creation of the world, from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve, that's what that means. Every human being came from Adam and Eve, and that's when this started. And what was true of Adam and Eve has been true of every human being born ever since. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, the fact that He exists, that He is deity, He is powerful, He is creator, He is judge. That He is everywhere. His invisible attributes. That He exists. His eternal power and His divine nature. Those are His attributes that are invisible. That every human being is aware of, knows, and knows intuitively with the imprint of God at the very time they were conceived in the womb of their mother. They know this. It's been revealed to them since creation. His eternal power and divine nature have been, get this, clearly seen. They can't claim ignorance. Oh, that's ambiguous. No, it's clearly seen. Being understood, get that. Not only is it clearly seen and manifested, being clearly understood. See, they comprehend it. They know this. So if somebody says they're an atheist and they're grown-up and they're older, They are either lying, or they're clever, or they're blinded by their own sin. They are deceived, or they're being deceptful. Because it has been clearly revealed, it has been clearly seen, and it has been clearly understood. And they are clearly, willfully suppressing this truth. Being understood through what has been made, the creation. It is undeniable. So that they are without excuse. There it is. No one can go to the throne of God when they die and say, Well, I was an atheist, God. Therefore, I am exonerated and not guilty. And God says, no, they are without excuse. 21, for even though they knew God, get this, that's a weird statement. Verse 21, for even though even though the unbeliever knew God, how does an unbeliever know God? I thought Jesus said in Matthew 7, depart from me, I never knew you. Well, it just has a different meaning for no in this case. It's not... No, in terms of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's no intellectually, the factual reality that God exists and he created me and I am accountable to him. So it's talking about they know factually. A truth that is undeniable. So even though they knew God, not in a personal relationship, but what reality is. That he exists, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became over time during their life. By accepting sin, resisting God, accepting sin, resisting truth, delving into sin more and more, going down that spiral of sin as they got older, becoming more callous, becoming more hardened, becoming more distant, becoming more assertive in their unbelief. That's what he's talking about, the spiral of sin. They didn't honor God on a regular basis. They gave into their sin on a continual basis. They rejected truth on a regular basis. They didn't give thanks to the Creator, but they became, notice, as a result, futile in their speculations and the way they think. They can't think straight about spiritual matters. They're spiritually deceived. And as a result, their foolish heart was darkened. On the inside, they are darkened. They are deceived. They can't see clearly. They can't see anything, spiritually speaking, without the intervention of God. All they see is darkness because they love the darkness, Jesus said in John 3.19. That is the diagnosis of every atheist. That is the state of every unbeliever. That was, that's what I was like for 19 years before I got saved. That is your biography before you got saved. And professing to be wise, they became rebels. So the atheist was born an atheist. God made it clear to them at the point of creation. And then Romans 2.15 just talks about how God has written on the heart of every human being a conscience. That's why there's a moral code in every culture of the world today, and there's been a moral code in every culture of humanity for 6,000 years. Really, it's universal. Well, how does this little tribe know way over yonder there, who never read the United States Constitution, that murder in cold blood is wrong? It's a little distorted and perfect, they got their own rules, but pretty much they know that marriage is between one man and one woman, that murder is basically wrong, and killing kids is wrong, and rape is wrong, and... Stealing is wrong. They know that. Where does this come from? This comes from the gift of the human conscience that God imprinted on the human soul when He made every human being in His image. And that's Romans chapter 2, verse 15. So the atheist was born a theist. He became an atheist as a result of sin and God's judgment. That takes us to number four. The atheist knows God exists. And you can turn to Psalm one, uh, Psalm 19. And I'm just going to... Read a couple phrases that I just read in Romans 1 that makes that argument. They know God exists. Verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them. They know God exists. Then it says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. By the way, when it says even though they know God exists, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The Greek term for suppress is very graphic. And the picture or imagery is uh, the unbeliever is standing on a big box, like, you know, one of those refrigerator boxes that you get from uh, Sears and the kids get to play with it and they stand on top of it. And there's a lid on this box and God is inside that box and the unbeliever is on top of the box and God's trying to get out and God keeps pushing on the lid and the lid's bumping up and that unbeliever, he is just jumping down on that box and he ain't going to let God out. He is suppressing the reality of God's existence. That's what that word is talking about. It is continual, it is ongoing, it is present tense. Suppressing, pressing, trying to squeeze God out. So the atheist knows God exists. Uh, And then Psalm 19 testifies to this same reality. Every human being knows God exists. We saw in Ecclesiastes 3.11, every human being knows that God exists because of an internal witness that God put on every human soul. An internal witness. Psalm 19 says every human being knows God exists because of the external witness that God has given to humanity. So every human being is without excuse. They know God exists because of an internal witness of being made in God's image and being given a conscience that God made put within them. And then every human being knows God exists by virtue of creation, external revelation, general revelation, we call it. And that's what Psalm 19 is saying. There are no atheists. It's impossible. They can't be in light of general revelation on the outside. And that's why Psalm 19... Verse 1 and following says this, The heavens are, dec- are telling of the glory of God. The hev- creation, and especially the stars, by the way, and the sun, those who can actually see on planet Earth, no matter where you are standing on planet Earth, you can see the sun, right? And you can see the stars. So it's a universal witness to everybody. doesn't matter if you're a pygmy in Africa or a businessman in New York City, at some point, if you've got eyes, you're going to see the sun and the stars. It's a universal witness and testimony that there is somebody out there greater than you and there's somebody who created all of this. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. The creation and the stars declare and make manifest the creation of God and that He exists and their expanse of the stars, the expanse, the billboard of the sky. Billboards try to catch our attention. God has a billboard. He made the first billboard. It's called the sky. And in His billboard, He has His beautiful creation, the stars The sun, the moon, and their expanse is declaring in an ongoing manner the work of God's hands, declaring God is creator. Wow, did you see that billboard we just drove by? No, it's still there. God is creator, God exists. Verse 2, day to day. See, it is non-stop. It is continual. It's been going on since week one of creation, since Adam and Eve. It never stops. Day to day. Day to day. It pours forth speech. Day to day, the sky pours forth speech. That God exists. What do you mean it pours forth speech? The stars and the sun and the moon, they are sign language. Human beings did not invent sign language. God did. He's communicating and He's not using words here or the alphabet or letters or writing. It is sign language. Day to day, God pours forth speech in the sky through His creation. And it doesn't go down at night. uh, during the day. During the day, we have the sun as the testimony. And at nighttime, it doesn't stop because it from night to night reveals knowledge about God by virtue of the stars and the moon. So the billboard is lit up 24-7. Year after year, year after year, millennium after millennium. Verse 3, there is no speech. There aren't any words. It's not propositional truth. Nobody's speaking it, but it is always there. It's sign language. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Well, what about those people over in that jungle who don't know the alphabet, haven't learned to read and write, and they're illiterate? Well, they don't need to be literate to know God exists because... There is no speech. There are no words. It is a universal sign language that everybody knows and understands. Their voice is not heard. Verse 4, their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. See, the sun keeps revolving around and around. Comes out of the bridegroom. Goes across the sky like it's going to get married. It's on a journey. It's going somewhere deliberately. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. See, the sun has a course going round and round. Verse 6, its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit, its circuit, a circuit is something that is round. Look at that. The earth is round in verse 6. This is in 1000 BC. The circuit of the sun that goes in a regular constant circle orbit. Wow. We didn't need scientists to come along and tell us that. It's circuit runs from one end to the other, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So that is called external, or that's called general revelation, an external witness to the fact that God exists, and every single person on earth is accountable to it. So every human being knows that God exists. Even atheists know that God exists because of the internal witness of conscience and the external witness of creation, which takes us to number five. The atheist has the same problem as any other unbeliever. What is that? Because people try to tell us sometimes that atheists, well, they're unique unbelievers. You've got to deal with them differently. First, you've got to spend all your arguments and your time convincing them of theism. Then when you've done that, then you can start talking about the gospel. I'm saying, "Mm, not. I don't believe that. He's not in a special category. The atheist has the same problem as any other unbeliever, and that is spiritual blindness. They are spiritually blind. Every every unbeliever is in the same category. They are spiritually blind blind they are blind for two reasons they are blinded by their own sin and they are blinded by the god of this world who is satan that's true and that's supernatural blindness and there's only one thing and one person that can overcome supernatural blindness of an unbeliever and that is a supernatural god creator and savior and judge unbelievers can't be saved by any human means it has to be supernatural intervention by god himself and a supernatural initiative on His part with a supernatural transaction and a supernatural solution to their supernatural problem with supernatural blindness from their own sin and Satan. And it is only God that can do that. Spiritual blindness. Blinded by Satan and sin. 2 Corinthians four, three is explicit. The Apostle Paul said, sometimes we go and we preach the Gospel, some believe, a few believe, a minority believe, most reject Wide is the the path, narrow, or wide is the gate for those who don't believe, and so most reject our message. Said Paul, "Our gospel is veiled, and the reason people don't believe is because they're blinded. The truth we're speaking, it is veiled. There's a curtain over their ability to understand spiritually. That veil is a blindness." And it's a supernatural blindness. What is the veil? What's blinding them, Paul? It is veiled to those who are perishing. They're headed to hell if they don't repent or get saved. What's wrong? Well, their minds have been blinded, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. That is Satan. Satan is the God of this fallen world. He is the God of this age. Anybody that doesn't believe, that has willful rejection at that moment of time, they are blinded by Satan himself and they cannot see the glorious gospel, said Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. So you've got to understand that what you're dealing with when you have an unbeliever, it's not, oh, this guy doesn't believe, he just needs more information. Oh, this little kid, man, he'll be saved by Friday because I've got these coercive, impressive arguments. And I've got all this evidence I have amassed. No, that's the wrong diagnosis. This little kid or this adult is blinded by Satan himself and only a merciful, gracious, supernatural God is going to save this person. Because he's blinded by Satan. He's also blinded by his own sin, Matthew 23. This is all over the place. Uh, Jesus diagnosed the unbelieving Pharisees and he said, Woe to you, blind guides. You are spiritually blind. And what he was talking about there is they were blinded by their own willful sin. You blinded yourself because of your sin. Fools and blind. The blind leading the blind. John 3.19. Right after John 3.16. Men love darkness rather than light. Unbelievers love darkness rather than light. Unbelievers love sin rather than truth and holiness. That's what that means. Unbelievers. Men loved darkness. Love, by the way, is the word agape, agapao. That is an intense quality of love that is different than all other kinds of love. And this almost a supernatural love that they have, they have this supernatural love for their own sin. Sin. Men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. See, it's all motivated by their own sin. They are accountable. They are culpable. So we need a supernatural solution. There is no human solution, which takes us to number six. Only one thing can help an atheist. Only one thing can help the atheist, which is the same one thing that helps any unbeliever. And what is that? That's the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. The gospel, that means good news. That is the only solution. The gospel is a supernatural gift from God, initiated by God, given by God, created by God, executed by God, fulfilled in the person and life of Jesus Christ. That He is the God man, He came down to the very world that He created. Jesus created this world, Jesus loved this world. Jesus knew about His plan before the world even existed. He came down from the glories of heaven, took on a human body, and became 100% God, 100% man. He already always existed as God and took on 100% humanity. He was the God-man. Lived a perfect life for 33 years. Willingly went to the cross. Planned His own execution in eternity past. To die and be crucified on the cross as the sinless Savior, as a substitute for any sinner who would believe in Him. Then He was buried. He died and was buried. He rose again from the dead. He rose Himself from the dead. That's what He said in John 10, 18. No man takes my life from me. I will willingly lay it down. I will willingly raise it up again. This is Jesus' plan. Died on the cross, rose again from the dead, ascended on high. He reigns and rules as the savior and the judge of the world of every soul not just believers but of unbelievers too and anybody that comes to the lord jesus christ in repentance believing his message will be saved in a moment of time instantaneously not by any human works but by believing in the gospel the good news that jesus is the god man he died as a substitute he got punished for their sin by God the Father. God the Father unleashed His wrath, His infinite wrath on Jesus when Jesus was on the cross and Jesus is absorbing the wrath and the hatred of sin of the Father so that any unbeliever who repents wouldn't have to absorb the wrath of the Father in judgment. And anybody who believes that and cries out to the Lord Jesus, God, forgive me. Lord Jesus, forgive me. Be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. In that moment of time, that sinner will be forgiven. That sinner will be justified, born again, adopted into the family of God forever. Man, that is good news. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Christianity. Saving yourself, dealing with your sin, dealing with your guilt. There's no human solution, no human philosophy, no other human religion. No medication. Nothing. There is no solution except the gospel of Jesus Christ and that alone. And that's why Paul said this, Romans 1.16. And we'll close on this. It's awesome. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it. For the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God. And I will say this. It is the only power of God for salvation. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, anyone who believes. You can't work for your salvation. It's to anyone who believes. Paul goes on to say that's why the world, they need to hear the message of the gospel. It needs to be taught. It needs to be preached. It needs to be specific. It needs to be explicit. It's all about Jesus Christ, who He is, what He did, what He offers, what He demands, what He requires, what He expects. And the judgment prospectively will face from Him as judge one day. That is the message of Christ. What do people need to be saved? They need faith. They need supernatural faith given and initiated by God. And faith only comes from one place. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing. And hearing by the Word of Christ. It is only in the preached gospel. is the solution for all humanity. And God is a gracious God. He's a merciful God. God is not willing that any should perish. That's why he sent Jesus on a rescue mission. Jesus came down to seek and save that which were lost. He's a loving, gracious Savior. And many of you have already experienced that wonderful gift of salvation. Let's go ahead and thank the Lord in prayer. Father, we do thank You for our time together in Your Word. God, I thank You that although Scripture was written... Two plus thousand years ago, it is the living word of God. It's still relevant. It still pertains to every issue we have to contend with in life about spiritual realities and even practical day to day issues in our life. Thank you for your verdict on atheism. God, thank you for saving some here from atheism, from a rebellious heart. Thank you for the rest of us who are saved out of our wrong belief systems. You are so gracious, Father. We, we thank You for that. We praise You, Lord Jesus, for Your goodness. God, continue with Your Spirit and with the truth of the Gospel working on hearts of others who still haven't believed, haven't trusted You, but are running from You. And pray that, We pray that You'd seek them out, soften them, bring them to conviction, adopt them into Your family, that they would repent and believe in You. And we trust that all to You as the author of salvation. Thank You. We praise You all for Your glory. In Christ's name, Amen.